Good morning. Today's reading is from John chapter 21, 1-14. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberia. It happened this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire burning coals, and there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples, and he was raised from the dead. Thanks, Nev. Uh, We read that section of the Bible because here at uh, Gospel PC... Uh, we're interested in the Bible as a whole. We believe that it is actually the Word of God, and so we're keen to look at every section of it. And we've been just slowly going through the uh, the Gospel of John, coming to the end of it, and this is our final, well, coming to very much the end. Uh, but I'm going to pray now and ask God to uh, be with us as we reflect a little bit more on this passage. Gracious Father, thank you for the Bible. Please be with us now. Please help us to focus, focus on the events that are recorded here, the eyewitness testimony, and to be moved as you want us to in faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been reading recently the once very popular book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Anyone read this? No? A few people heard of it? Anyway. It's by uh, a couple of people, uh, Robert Kiyosaki and uh, and Sharon Letcher, uh, which tells people how to get out of the rat race. Uh, you know, get more assets. This is how you do it. You get more assets. You have more liability. Have less liabilities. Then you incorporate those assets to legally avoid tax. Uh, let your money work for you and not you for your money. Uh, in this way, uh, he you, be, you become rich and you have more freedom. That's uh, the main thrust of the book. Now. There may be some wisdom in this book. It certainly seems to be a viable way for those with old money or a bunch of spare cash lying around uh, to start with, or maybe who are young uh, with little overheads and their whole life ahead of them. But even if you do get out of the rat race uh, following this guy's advice, you know, with your company buying you uh, your next Tesla, 
Tesla, sorry, from <laughs> before tax and your money working for you rather than for you for your money, such that, uh, you know, you're free not to work and maybe even get to retire in your 40s. Uh, can we be sure, even if you get there, can we be sure of the freedom that this book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, promises? You know, the being rich promises. Because first, this assumes being rich will satisfy us. But then second, even if we are satisfied by the uh, being rich, it assumes that we should be. That the goal of life is being rich enough to enjoy the best of this life. But I suspect that most of us know that there's something just a little bit off uh, about simply living to be rich. And yet, I reckon this is the goal that most of us get sucked into. Whether it's working hard to get more money to buy more things or studying hard to get the grades to get into that job that you think will give you the money that, or status that will give you the lifestyle that you want. You know, there seems to be a trajectory that a lot of us follow. Or working your assets to generate more money to give you the money or the status that will give you the lifestyle that you want. This, this, is, this is the way that the world is constantly shoving down our throats uh, as the way to live. Everyone else is doing it, so surely we can have it as well, have it all as well. But here's the thing. We're all going to die. Yeah, I know. Shock. And, and none of what we've earned, none of what we've busted our gut for or orientated our business around or acquired, none of it will count for anything when we're dead. Because our life here and now, it's, it's a blip on what's coming. It's a blip. Eternity is on its way. In some way, uh, it's already here. And, and there's only one asset, one asset that we can take with us. One thing that'll outlast death. And that's believing and obeying Jesus. Which is where I reckon this passage, uh, from John is taking us uh, today to slow down and to seriously reflect on being with Jesus. But first, uh, let's recap on where we've been so far in the story of John. Uh, Jesus has been crucified on a Friday. He's died and been buried in a tomb. Uh, but on Sunday, he rose from the dead. He's appeared to Mary Magdalene first, and then he appears to the disciples uh, as a group. They're all together in a locked room, and Jesus appears to them uh, in the flesh, as you can imagine, they're overcome with joy. And then a week later, they're in that rock locked room again. At this time, Doubting Thomas is with them and Jesus appears again right there in their midst. And Thomas, upon seeing the risen physical Jesus, cries out, My Lord and my God. An incredible but necessary thing to say to the one who not only rose from the dead, but knew Thomas's every doubt and graciously met him where he was at. Jesus tells us, as we saw last week, that all these things were written about Jesus, that he's written, that John has written them, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and to have life in his name. That's why all this has been written and recorded. But he's keen to make sure that this is the case for us, that people believe and have life. And key for him is that they're convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. He wants people to be sure that Jesus bodily, physically rose from the dead, which is where this next passage uh, takes us. Firstly, to affirm that Jesus really is back from the dead. He really is risen. So that secondly, 
we might live like he's really there, which he is. So, firstly, Jesus is really back from the dead. That's, that's what John wants us to believe. Uh, verse 14, at the end of the passage that we just read, had read to us, uh, we're told this was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And to affirm this, John, he leans heavily into the eyewitness nature of this third appearing of Jesus. Uh, firstly, that the disciples were there by the Sea of Galilee, and the place where Jesus told them he was going on ahead of them after he'd risen, so they're there, they're waiting. Uh, seven of them, we're told in verse 2, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John and two others, and they all decide to go fishing, they catch nothing, but then Jesus rocks up uh, on the shore telling them to throw the net, uh, one last time, they get a miraculous catch of fish. John twigs, it's Jesus, tells Peter, he goes over the side of the boat to go to Jesus. But before he does, uh, John tells us he wraps his outer garment around himself there in verse 7. What a superfluous detail. Who cares? Uh, but it does seem, I reckon, like something an eyewitness might notice and actually put in their statement. There's no record of what happens between Peter and Jesus after he's jumped out of the boat and gone to him while the rest of the disciples are dragging the boat and the net full of fish. And this also suggests that no one but Peter and Jesus witnessed that encounter and clearly they didn't share it with John or the others. So it's not recorded here. As uh, And I reckon that further underscores the eyewitness nature of this story. As does the rather random number of fish mentioned in verse 11. 153 large fish. John tells us. Now, uh, some down through history have made a big deal of this number, uh, that it's the triangular number of 17. Uh, did you know that? That means that, you know, if you're 1 plus 2 plus 3 all the way to 17, it equals 153. Amazing. Uh, that Then that 17, that precious 17 number, some say represents the Ten Commandments plus the sevenfold spirit of God mentioned in uh, Revelation. Or it represents where gospel fishermen are to spread their nets. I don't know how they figure this out, but uh, it all seems pretty far-fetched to me. Why can't it just be a bald historical fact, right? Uh, there were a lot of large fish, and one of the disciples thought, hey, that's a lot of fish. Why don't I count them? And so he did, and it was 153. And John thought, hey, that's a cool detail. I think I'll put that in this eyewitness account. Brilliant. But what I... Uh, Think for me, what smacks of this being an eyewitness account uh, is actually John's aside in verse 12. It's fascinating. Uh, Jesus said to them, come and have some breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. The disciples know it's Jesus. They've seen him before, and yet they're still in a bind. <laughs> they want to ask him if it's really him, but they don't dare to because they know it is. And yet, and yet, I've got this theory about our brains, uh, that our brains are wired in a certain way, such that after someone dies, particularly someone that we know and love, we, we just can't see them again. To protect us, our brains just close off that possibility. So that even if they were to stand physically alive in front of us, there'd be some kind of mental disconnect and we just wouldn't recognise them. Or we might, but we just can't believe our eyes. And maybe that's what's going on here for the disciples. That Jesus eating breakfast with them in the flesh here is just so surreal, so kind of disorientating, 
it, it just makes them incredibly uneasy. And you can imagine them, I reckon, talking about it later. You know, Nathaniel chatting to Thomas going, I didn't know what to think. Yeah, me too. I wanted to ask if it was really him. I wanted to say something, but I, I, I thought I'd sound dumb because it was really him. I know, I know. Who would have thought? And that actually just strikes me as very human, right? It's a very believable response to seeing someone back from the dead. And it highlights again the eyewitness nature of this appearance. Jesus really is alive bodily, back from the dead. And this is important for John that we know this, that we trust this, that Jesus' resurrection, it wasn't just a group fiction, you know, like some ruse that they all kept up to keep people believing. Uh, if it had made them rich and powerful, you might get why they would keep up that lie. But by the time that John writes this gospel, most of those who claim to have seen the risen Jesus, they've either been taken to court for saying so, or they've been thrown in prison, many of them been executed, why would they suffer and die for something they knew was a lie? And and it's not like they were all on some psychedelic drug trip together, you know, all 500 of them hallucinating seeing Jesus over 40 days in various places. The best explanation is Jesus physically rose from the dead. They saw a dead guy. And John wants us to be sure about this. Because it's as we believe this, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, risen physically from the dead, having died for our forgiveness, it's then that we take the first step towards having life in his name. A life that will stretch into eternity with God. A life that has eternal significance. Because everything we do now, everything we think, it's all in the presence of Jesus as if he was sitting there right in front of us, cooking up breakfast. Which brings us to our second point, living in the presence of Jesus, which is the genius of this part of the story because uh, it slows right down, uh, right down in the details, so that even though we're not told how the disciples feel, I reckon we can find our own thoughts and our own feelings in this story as we kind of meander through the pedestrian details of their life and perhaps see how having Jesus personally with us might change things. So remember what the disciples have just been through. They've been in Jerusalem, they've watched their rabbi and teacher get crucified, but then they see him back again from the dead on two remarkable occasions, which is incredible, right? Uh, They're astonished with joy. Their world has been turned upside down. Everything they thought was impossible is coming true. They're on an absolute high. More than being at uh, you know some excellent conference or on a really great holiday. Better than even if they were on their honeymoon or at a brilliant double baptism. Uh, they're on a high, right? But now it's days later, perhaps weeks. The confetti has been thrown and swept away. The holiday's over uh, and it's back to work. And yet I imagine it's like they took the red pill and woke up from the matrix you know, knowing Jesus is back from the dead means just that life is irretrievably different. With Jesus back from the dead, there's no going back to how life was, and yet it's like nothing has changed. And so you get the sense the disciples are just kind of killing time. You know, so verse 3, Peter's like, I'm going out to fish. And then they said, yeah, we'll go, we'll go with you. you know, what else have we got to do? Uh, so they went out and got into the boat. These guys are fishermen, right? Before they knew Jesus, this was their trade. This is what they did for a living. And it was a family business. 
Now, a friend of mine has a dad who's been a successful businessman. Uh, he owns his own company, and, and he hopes my friend will take over that company. But my friend became a Christian, and then a minister at a church. He's got absolutely no interest at all in uh, keeping his dad's company running. But his dad thinks it's just a phase that he's going through, uh, that he's, he'll get over it, he'll come to his senses, uh, and he'll come back to the family company. And maybe that's, that's what many are thinking about where the disciples are at. You know, they've had, they've gone through this phase. Uh, there's three years of craziness following this itinerant rabbi. He's got himself killed, and now they're back home, uh, back to their roots, back to get on with real life. But I suspect they'd have no idea how disappointing it is uh, for them. You know, verse three again. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. You can imagine Peter and the others shaking their heads, wondering, you know, what the heck are we doing here? Uh, they're coming down from the drama of the last few weeks to settle into normal life, and it's just a little bit of a letdown. And that, that fact's only highlighted by the fact that they catch nothing here. Yeah, one of my uh, favourite scenes in the Lord of the Rings films uh, is where the four brave hobbits have returned to their homes in the Shire after the high drama of being in battles and saving Middle-earth from the scourge of the evil Sauron. They all sit in their lodge at home, sipping their beers, surrounded by their frivolity and the chatter of the rest of the town, who are uh, they're completely oblivious to what they've experienced, which makes the surrounding activity just seem so small and insignificant. It's a, it's a magic little scene. And I imagine the disciples might be having like a similar kind of feeling. Having gone back home to fish and then catch nothing, life is just so underwhelming. Jesus turns up, however, and rocks their boat again. So we read from verse 4. Early in the morning... Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples, they didn't realise it was him. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No. Or maybe it was like, no. They answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, I'm not sure why the disciples listened to some rando they uh, don't know, tell them to throw their nets out again. Maybe... Maybe it's because they're back home again and that's just what Galileans do, right? Give each other unsolicited advice about fishing because everyone knows about fishing in Galilee. Uh, but for whatever reason, they do what he says and they get a massive haul of fish. Now, maybe Peter's a little slow on the uptake, but John, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who's writing this gospel, he seems to put two and two together. He remembers what Jesus did when he first found them. You know, three or so years ago, perhaps on this very spot. Uh, they were fishing for a whole night without any luck, and then Jesus rocks up and tells them to put their nets out one last time. They do, and they get a massive haul of fish. We read about this in the Gospel of Luke, uh, where we read, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken. And so James, so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. 
Seems pretty similar, doesn't it, to the story that we're reading here in John's Gospel. And John, he's clearly, he, he's twigged. He realises, oh, it's the Lord, verse 7. Um, and Peter's like, what? So yeah, bolts into the sea out towards Jesus. But then John takes his time telling us what the rest of them are doing in verses 8 and 9. The other disciples followed in the boat, tying the net full of fish, fish, fish. <laughs> Hello, New Zealanders. Uh, for they were not far from shore, about uh, 100 yards. For those who don't do imperial, that's uh, 90 metres or so. When they la- landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Ooh, yawn. Who cares? <laughs> uh, what's the point? What's the point of these details? Years ago, I started reading uh, the novel Moby Dick by Herman Melville. It's a classic, and I thought there'd probably be a good reason for that. And if nothing else, I can impress those who are impressed by such things by saying that I'd read it. Anyway, I persevered through overly descriptive chapter after chapter. Who's read this? Yeah, I'm so sorry. Uh, but, but seven or eight or nine chapters in, and they're not even on a boat yet, let alone getting any whale action, but I've had 20 pages of describing the inside of a portside chapel. Ah, it's a long tease to get to the good stuff. <laughs> and in a way, what Melville did with Moby Dick is a little bit like what John's doing here in this gospel. The interesting thing, the key element, the thing that we want to know about is Jesus, right? The story, the story point is Jesus. But John keeps our attention on the boat, on the fish, on the shore, on some coals, some bread. It's a tease. It's a clever tease because it raises our expectations and it makes all these ordinary things less ordinary, right? Like they're super important just because Jesus is there, like in the periphery, not me, but he's he's there. And it's not like he's doing or saying anything extraordinary. Like verse 10, we read Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Verse 12, come and have some breakfast. Verse 13, he took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. It's pretty ordinary stuff, isn't it? It's not terribly riveting. This wouldn't be winning any Booker Prizes for outstanding writing. Uh, what's happening, it's not captivating. But who's in it is. And that's the point. The risen Jesus makes everything that's going on here significant. Everything. As pedestrian, ordinary, and boring as it might seem, that Jesus is there loads the whole scene with energy. It's like it's crackling with potential, with purpose. Like something remarkable, important is going to happen. That it must happen. And as such, it's a little uncomfortable. You know, like a tingle in the nose, but no sneeze to relieve it, right? And at least John and Peter are drawing the link to Jesus' first encounter with them, where he told them that they'd be fishes of men. Perhaps that's weighing on their minds. Jesus is risen, incredibly back from the dead in the flesh, but but what do you do with that? Particularly when he's right there in the flesh eating breakfast with you. You know, their jumbled thoughts tell us something of their confusion. Not confusion over whether he's risen from the dead, they know that, but what to do with it. Even how to think about it. And isn't that a little bit like us sometimes? If we're trusting in Jesus, we believe that he rose physically from the dead. And what's more, he tells us that anyone who believes in him has the Holy Spirit with him, with them. 
That means they are united to Jesus. We couldn't be closer to Jesus even if he was sitting on the beach eating fish with us. He's with us right now, profoundly with us now. And that makes everything that we do significant. Not because it's significant in itself, but because Jesus is with us. The ordinary is charged with potential, with purpose, with significance, because Jesus is there. And just like John and Peter, we know that he's called us to be fishers of men and women. That what we do with our life is eternally wrapped up in Jesus and what he's thinking and what he wants because he's with us right now. Uh, Many years ago I moved into a friend's unit but in the process of uh, putting my bed together I smashed the light fitting. Um, He didn't say anything about it. Uh, He didn't have to. (laughs) Just him being there with me all the time the days after uh, just made me very aware of what I needed to do. Right? Well, a bit like this, even though we may not see him, Jesus is right here with us, with each of us. He's as good as sitting next to you. Imagine what you'd be thinking about if he materialised in the flesh before you and then went home with you and decided to crash on your lounge for good. After the shock, I imagine we might spend less time on our phones, doom-scrolling our lives away. I imagine we might check our thoughts all the time and how we use our time, right? I imagine we'd start to care more about what he wants And maybe we'd even ask him, what do you want? As we got on in the ordinariness of our lives, we'd stop looking, I suspect, for worldly thrills and worldly tickets to freedom and we'd start regularly, I reckon, checking in with him about what he wants, about how we might be fishers of people for his sake. I imagine we might stop just talking about what he wants and actually doing it. So I think it would be good to take some time now to imagine that he's right next to you now. And this is not a mind game for those who are trusting in Jesus because he profoundly is with you by the Holy Spirit. He's profoundly alive. So to imagine him next to you is just to use your brain to see what is really true. Imagine him sitting next to you in the flesh right now. And as you do that, examine your feelings Examine your response to him. What would you say? What would you like to ask him? As he asks you to give him some of the things that he's miraculously given you to share with others, what are you going to do? As he calls you to come and eat the food that he's prepared for you, as he gives you the life that you have right now and the knowledge of him alive and well right now, What are you aware of? What do you want to ask him, but perhaps dare not to, because maybe you already know the answer? We're going to spend the next few very ordinary moments now, just a minute, and charge them with the reality that the risen Jesus is present, personally present with you now, and listen to what perhaps you already know that he wants from you. 
and maybe then just decide to do it.